I haven't met you yet, my name is Caleb Batchelor, and I serve here at the church as the youth and families minister, and I am excited. I feel privileged to open up God's word with you this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. As you turn there, I wonder, if you had a time machine, what's one mistake you've made that you would really want to go back and undo? If you could travel back in time, what's one sin that you'd give anything to make right? Or what about this? If your life was an exam, what's the one question that you really botched and you'd do anything to go back and get a second chance? Well, if you're anything like me, if your life was an exam, it would be filled with a lot of red ink, wouldn't it? Miss that, miss that, really missed that. And it's almost impossible to choose just one thing to fix. So many. And that right there, the extent, the depth of my sin makes the time machine and the retesting scenarios really, really unappealing to me. Honestly, they sound exhausting. Because even if I could go back and do, undo that one sin, there would be so many other sins to undo. And who knows, maybe if I went back a second time, I'd do even worse. The extent, the depravity of our sin is so much, so much to bear. Let me retake life's exam a thousand times and I would fail each time. But what if, what if someone could step into time and space and right every wrong? What if someone could take the test for us? Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, 
And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I think the main idea of our text this morning is this. Jesus took the test that we could never pass. And he gives us his score, which we could never earn. Again, if you're taking notes, I think the main idea of the text this morning and of the sermon is this. Jesus took the test that we could never pass, and he gives us his score, which we could never earn. Point number one, Jesus took the test for us. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In chapter 3, we saw that the Father anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit for his ministry, for the beginning of his public ministry. And what does the Spirit do? He drives Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted, to fast. It's a rough way to start ministry. It's a tough way to start a new job. This upcoming week, actually tomorrow, our new minister of discipleship, Alex Schroeder, is going to start his job here at the church. Now imagine if the elders turned to Alex and said, we're going to ask you to spend your first 40 days in the East Mountains with no food. That would be a rough way to start. But that's exactly how Jesus starts his job. 40 days in the wilderness being tested. Why? Why? Why did the Spirit drive Jesus into the wilderness? Well, the short answer is back to our main idea. So that he could take the test for us. Whether we want to admit it or not, I think we all know here this morning that before a perfect holy God, our test scores just aren't going to cut it. Whatever we present before God is just not going to cut it. We need someone to take the test for us. That's the short answer. The longer answer that I want us to look at in our first point, just for a little bit briefly, is this. Is that when we look at the book of Matthew, and if we will zoom out and look at the whole storyline of the Bible, we will see that Jesus is not only taking the test for us, but he's also taking it for Adam and for Israel. We're going to start with Israel and work our way backwards. Jesus as Israel. And Matthew has been dropping hints about this all the way through the gospel up to this point. We've been seeing this. In chapter 2, Jesus comes out of Egypt just like Israel does in the Exodus. In chapter 3, we see that Jesus goes through the River Jordan just like Israel goes through the Red Sea and the River Jordan. And what do we see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2? Well, there's 40 days of testing in the wilderness where Jesus was hungry. We've heard this story before, haven't we? Israel was tested for 40 years in the wilderness where they were also hungry. And then in chapter 5 through 7, we're going to see Jesus ascending a mountain to give the law, just like Moses shared God's law with Israel on Mount Sinai. If you're unconvinced of this parallel between Jesus and Israel, just look at the passages that Jesus quotes when Satan is tempting him. He refers to three passages, all coming from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. These are all quotations that reference Israel failing in the wilderness. When Jesus recites these passages, he is doing more than just quoting the Bible. 
he's letting Satan know that he knows he is true Israel. It's a power play. And Matthew is shining a bright light on it. Matthew's account of Jesus' life is making an undeniable point. Jesus is who Israel should have been, and he is the king of Israel who can finally represent God's people perfectly. The king who can represent us before God, and the king who could do what Adam couldn't do. Jesus is also Adam. When Adam went head to head with the devil, what happened? He lost. Pretty bad, actually. First round knockout. But what does God promise in Genesis 3.15, right after Adam failed? God promised another Adam. To borrow the Apostle Paul's language, he promised a last Adam. A son from Eve that would look the devil in the eye, take the hardest test, and crush the serpent's head. Friends, in chapter 4, we have our man. True Israel, last Adam, Jesus Christ. And he's ready to take the test for us. He has three big questions that he's going to answer. Will he fast for us? Will he trust for us? Will he worship for us? Spoiler alert, he's going to do all those things. Point number two, Jesus fasted for us. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you are the Son of God. Satan attacks Jesus' divinity a couple times. In the first temptation and the second temptation. But doesn't this seem like a strange way to challenge Jesus' divinity? Hey, Jesus, but you can't turn those stones into bread. What's, what's up with that? It's like fourth grade trash talk. <laughs> but you can't stand on top of your head and recite the Pledge of Allegiance backwards, Jesus. It's ridiculous. What's going on with the stones and the bread, though? There's something more significant. What's so wrong about Jesus eating bread in our passage? At first glance, nothing necessarily, right? I mean, we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus feasts. He actually feasts quite often. He actually feasts enough for some people to falsely accuse him as a glutton and a drunkard. So why can't Jesus eat bread right now? The answer comes from verse 1. Going back to verse 1. Prompted by the Spirit and in submission to his Father's plan, Jesus knew that these 40 days of testing were the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of his mission to cover his people with his righteousness. And if he turned those stones into bread, he would be turning the test in five minutes into the exam. And you and I, and the two people you're thinking about sharing the gospel with, and the nations would be left in our sins. 
Now, if he was just taking the test for himself, he could eat as much bread as he would want to. He didn't need to prove anything to himself or to his father or to the spirit. He was completely righteous. He could have turned a mountain into a palace and ate his bread by a pool. But if he was going to take the test for us, he needed to take it at the same testing center that we've been taking our test at, east of Eden. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, we've been taking our test east of Eden, in the wilderness, hungry, tired. That's where Israel took their test and failed. That's where we keep failing at our test. So if Jesus is going to take the test for us, he can't turn those stones into bread. He needs to obey when everything is stacked against him. It's the same kind of logic for the incarnation, why God became a man. If God the Son was ever going to represent us, he had to be like us. He needed to sympathize with us in our weakness. And we have a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, 15a. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He can sympathize with you in your weakness. When your kids are teething and you're tempted towards impatience, When you're working overtime and you're tempted towards irritation, Jesus can sympathize with you. But he can also do more than that. He can not only sympathize with you, he can obey for you. He's righteous. And that's the unique thing about Jesus. That's what makes him different than even the best spouse or the best friend. If you're lucky, you may have a couple people in your corner, people who sympathize with you when you're struggling. But your spouse or your best friends cannot be righteous for you. This is what Jesus did. When you're impatient, he understands that temptation, but he's also patient for you. When you're irritated, he understands that temptation to be irritated, but he's also loving When earthly comforts are taken away from us, he knows that it's easy to turn to other earthly comforts. But he turned to heavenly comforts. When we face earthly discouragement, we buy a dog. Or we find solace in a successful career or a nice family. Or we eat bread. And I like bread, guys. Especially the rolls from Texas Roadhouse with the honey butter. There's nothing wrong with those rolls, amen? Or a nice family or a successful career. What's wrong is when we turn to those things as our functional gods, as our peace and as our security. That's when they become sinful. And friends, in our wealthy American society with Netflix and alcohol and campgrounds. We are particularly prone to comforting ourselves to death. Turning to good things even. But turning to them as our gods. 
slightest pang of discomfort, we numb ourselves with comfort. And when we're tired with bread, we want quail. And when we're tired with quail, we want etc., etc. Not Jesus. Jesus turned to heavenly encouragement in his earthly discouragement. While he was fasting from bread, he was feasting on God's word. There was no honey butter in the wilderness, but his father's words were sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. His Old Testament was a buffet, and he went back for seconds, thirds, and dessert. Each verse was like a tree in a garden, and they were pleasant to the sight and good for food. He was full on God's word. And so when Satan offered the forbidden bread to Jesus, he could turn to him and say, no thanks, I'm actually quite stuffed. Jesus lived upon every word from the mouth of God. And his obedience in verses 2, 3, and 4 cover your disobedience when you turn to Netflix and alcohol and campgrounds as your functional gods. And not only that, every time Jesus turned to his Father and to his Father's words, that righteousness covers you as well. Even before your alarm will go off in the morning tomorrow, Jesus' righteousness that woke up early in the morning while it was still dark and prayed to his Father, that righteousness covers your morning devotions tomorrow. When your life is falling apart and you're not going to God's word like you should, the righteousness of Christ that turns to Psalm 22 on the cross covers you. Jesus paid the penalty for your lack of devotion to his Father but he also covers you. He also gives you his devotion to his Father. And that makes the Father really, really happy. Chapter 3, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, the Father looks at you and says, This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Rest in that, Desert Springs. In 2022, rest in that. Jesus fasted from bread and feasted on God's word for you. And it prepared him for his next temptation. Point number three, Jesus trusted for us. Starting in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. One of Satan's favorite tactics, one of his go-to plays, is to make us distrust God by distorting God's word. A distortion of God's word is one of the main ingredients in distrusting God's goodness. We see this in Genesis 3 too. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any 
tree in the garden? We saw this a couple months ago. God didn't say that Eve couldn't eat of any tree. God actually told Eve that she could eat of every tree, except one. Cutting and pasting, Satan distorts God's word, encouraging us to doubt God's goodness. He disguises himself as a biblical scholar. But he almost always breaks the first rule of studying the Bible. Satan loves to take verses out of context. He'll take one verse and present it as the whole truth. They sound so right in the moment. I mean, they're the Bible. And he knows that we respect the Bible. But taken out of context, the verses that he fills our minds with are poison. He'll say, It's written, Wretched man that you are, who will deliver you from this body of death? And we think, I know that Jesus saved some sinners, but maybe not me. Or Satan will say, It's written, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And we wonder, does God even care? Or Satan will say, it is written, why not sin so that grace may abound? And we weigh our options, and we think, why not give in one more time? Grace will abound. Does any of that sound familiar? In verse 6, the devil tries the same thing with Jesus. Jesus, it's written. Jesus, it is written. And he quotes him, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But he must have forgot about verse 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Psalm 91. Verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's what Satan read to Jesus. But he didn't read this verse. Verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. (laughs) And the serpent you will trample underfoot. We've heard that before. Genesis 3.15. One of Eve's sons will bruise the head of the serpent. Satan twists Psalm 91, 11 through 12, but he forgets about Psalm 91, 13. He should have read the next verse. He's quoting Psalm 91, 11 through 12 to the man who will fulfill Psalm 91, 13, to the man who will trample him underfoot, to the man who will destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
And with his foot pressing firmly on Satan's neck, Jesus reminds him, I don't need to test whether my father will care for me. He's the Lord God. He's the Lord God. Do you see that in verse 7? Jesus refers to God as Lord God, or in the original language, Yahweh God. And Satan hates that name. It's like nails on a chalkboard to him. Yahweh God is God's divine covenantal name. It's the name that screams, God's not going anywhere. He's good. He's for you. He's not leaving. He's trustworthy. No wonder Satan didn't want to bring up Yahweh God in Genesis 3. I'm not going to read this section of scripture, but I would like you guys to turn back to Genesis 2, chapter 2, and chapter 3. We won't read this, but I want you to just scan chapter 2 and see how many times you see the phrase, Lord God, or Yahweh God. Just scan through chapter 2. I counted 11 times. The chapter is full of God's divine covenantal name, saying that he is for Adam and Eve, that he is going to be with Adam and Eve, that they have no reason to doubt his goodness. Now look over to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7. We've been getting Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, all the way through chapter 2, and then we get to Genesis chapter 3, and what do we find? I don't see any mention of Lord God. It's an absence of God's divine covenantal name. Satan didn't mind bringing up God to Adam and Eve. He's fine with a little religion but he doesn't want them remembering Yahweh God. He doesn't want them to remember that God is trustworthy. But Jesus remembers. Jesus remembers and he trusts God for us. He trusts God for you. Your sleepless nights, your anxiety, Your fear that God is just a delusion and at any moment the bottom is going to drop out. All of that anxiety is covered with the trusting heart of Jesus. While your pulse is pounding uncontrollably with anxiety, the father sees his child breathing deeply, calmly in his arms. He sees his son in the boat while the storm is raging, knowing that his father has everything under control. And it makes him really, really happy. If you're anxious this morning, rest there. If you're battling anxiety later today, rest there. Jesus trusted for you. And he also worshiped for you. Point number four, Jesus worshiped for us. Which is 8 through 10. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. As God himself, Jesus knew that only God is worthy of worship. So he wasn't confused or tempted with the corrupt power that Satan offered him. Worship drove out any temptation for corrupt power. I wish that was always true of me, but it's not. When I don't find God satisfying, when I don't worship him, I naturally worship myself. I put myself on the throne of my heart. And I do anything to get power to keep myself there. And as silly and ridiculous as that may sound, I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Now I'm pretty sure none of us are reading verse 8 and thinking, you know what? I think I could rule all the kingdoms of the earth. I think I want that. I don't think there are any aspiring worldwide dictators in the room this morning. If that's your aspiration, please don't tell me, because that's terrifying and weird. But many, maybe all of us, crave power, don't we? It takes different forms, but worshiping ourselves, we crave power even over our little kingdoms. We don't want power over New Mexico or Canada or Kenya or any other kingdom of the world, but we want power in our families. Husbands and dads, you are the leaders of your home. You are not the gods of your home. But when we feel our weakness, when I feel my weakness, whether personally or socially or economically, we're tempted to double down on our authority. And we set unreasonable expectations on our family. And we raise our voice. Or even more subtly, we glorify our spiritual leadership in positioning ourselves as the saviors of our families. Maybe the boss doesn't respect me, but at least my family does. Maybe the presentation didn't go so well, but I'm really going to knock it out of the park with family devotions tonight. We crave power over our families, and wives and moms, you do too. You may or may not shout, but quiet manipulation is a form of corrupt power, is it not? Corrupt power also comes up in academics. Students, I'm thinking particularly of you bright students, which in our church is a lot of you. Good grades can glorify God, but they can also glorify your own intellect. Maybe you're not good at other things, but you're really good at school. You know that you can be able to build up that kingdom. You can make this all about yourself. Corrupt power comes up in how we think about our bodies as well. From your diet to your exercise to your thought life. 
Your body has been bought with the blood of Christ. And yet we can treat our bodies as our own temples and not temples of the living God. We crave power over our little kingdoms. And we also crave power over our political ideas and our political leaders which rule over larger kingdoms. Most of us realize that we can't control the larger kingdoms out there. Not directly, anyways. I recognize that. I mean, I love my job here at Desert Springs, but Fox News and CNN are not running stories on the youth and families ministry here at the church. I don't have direct control over what's going on in the global landscape, and neither do you. But many of us believe that given enough power, our political ideals or our favorite politicians can give us what our hearts desperately want. If we can just get so-and-so voted in or so-and-so voted out, then everything will be okay. Our kingdoms will stand over America, maybe even over all the kingdoms of the world. Satan knows we crave that kind of power over little kingdoms, over larger kingdoms. He knew that all the way back in Genesis 3. What did he say to Eve? God knows that when you eat of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, don't you want power like God? Don't you want to be like him and have divine power? It worked on Eve. It worked on Adam. It works on us. Not Jesus. Praise God, it didn't work on Jesus. Worshiping Yahweh God as God himself, he didn't need corrupt power. And so he submitted to his father's plan. A plan that would include death on the cross. In the garden of Gethsemane, looking at the cup of God's wrath. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Think about the righteousness that is required to pray a prayer like that. Think about the depth and the purity. That righteousness covers you. It's yours in Christ. Before the garden of Gethsemane, right after the Lord's Supper, knowing that his body would be broken and his blood spilled, what does Jesus do with his disciples? Matthew 26, 30. He sings a hymn. Right before he's going to drink the cup of his father's wrath, he sings. When you checked out mentally when we were singing earlier, and when you feel mixed motives when we sing in just a moment, the righteousness of Christ in Matthew 26, verse 30, covers you completely. It's yours in Christ. Rest there, Desert Springs. Jesus has worshiped for you, and the test is over. Point number five, Jesus passed the test for us. 
Verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I'm not sure whether God told the devil to leave or whether the devil realized that it was just pointless trying to tempt Jesus. But either way, Jesus passed the test for us. And he invites us to walk into every blessing he bought with his blood. The Israelites, the Israelites who disobeyed God for 40 years in the wilderness couldn't step into Canaan. But united to the true Israel, we can step into the new Canaan. Adam disobeyed in the garden and was sent out into the wilderness. But the last Adam obeyed in the wilderness. And in him, we can step into a new garden. When Jesus comes back, we can step into the new heavens and the new earth. Life eternal with God. We're going to see throughout our study of Matthew that Jesus opens the door to every new creation blessing for us in Christ. The cherubim in Genesis 3 guarded blessings because of Adam's disobedience. But through the obedience of the last Adam, those blessings and more are ours. When the angels minister to Jesus, it's as if the angels that had guarded the garden set down their swords and started setting the table for us. Jesus opens the door to new creation blessings and he holds the door open to anyone, to anyone who will trust in his life, death, and resurrection for salvation. Won't you come in? Aren't you tired of retaking and retaking and retaking and retaking life's exams? Hoping the next day will be better than the last. Aren't you tired of that? Won't you come in to the blessings that Jesus has for you? Won't you trade your test score for his test score? If you ask, he'll give it to you. And if you've already asked for his score, if you've already placed your trust in Christ for salvation, let me remind you one more time. The test is over. It really is. It's already over. Jesus finished the test, and in him, you've finished the test too. At the moment you trusted in Christ for salvation, at the very moment, your grade was submitted. And in Christ, it's a perfect 100. And here's the thing. I love this. You can't do anything to change it. No matter how hard you try, Jesus has already taken the test and the grade has been submitted. You're righteous in Christ. Not to minimize the seriousness of sin or its consequences. But even if you did find that time machine, and you could go back and undo that one sin that still plagues you, you couldn't be any more righteous in the eyes of your Father. 
perfectly righteous in Christ. Name the disobedience and claim the obedience of Christ. Name it and claim it. Name your sexual impurity and claim the sexual purity of Christ. Name your greed and claim the contentment of Christ. Name your worry and claim the peace of Christ. Name your anger and claim the love of Christ. Name your doubt and claim the faith of Christ. Name the sin and claim the Savior. We're almost over, but can I tell you some more good news? If you'll claim the Savior, he'll also give you the Spirit. And the Spirit can deliver you from every temptation. Look back up at verse 1 with me. It was the Spirit that drove Jesus out into the wilderness. But we don't get any mention of him ever leaving Jesus, do we? He didn't put him out there and then leave. He stayed with him throughout the whole 40 days, throughout his whole ministry. And when Jesus went next to his Father and he gave you the Spirit, He gave you the power to resist every temptation. Friends, you can actually resist temptation. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And the Spirit will actually empower you to obey. Not just to resist temptation, but to positively obey. To fast, and to trust, and to worship. The Spirit empowers you to fast. As nice as this world is, as much as we love Albuquerque and everything that it has, we don't need it. We can live upon every word from God. Singles. Singles in the room. In this season, you can actually resist sexual temptation. You really can. You really can fast from sexual pleasure as you wait. Married couples, if this has been a hard season of sexual intimacy for you, as hard as that providence is, God's word is sweet. And it can sustain you in this difficult providence. You can fast. And the Spirit empowers you to trust. The Spirit of adoption has been poured into our hearts. And when we're tempted to doubt His faithfulness, we can cry, Abba, Father. He's Yahweh. He's Yahweh, your God. Let's store up these biblical promises in our hearts. Let's store them up. It's how Jesus fought temptation, right? Did you notice that in each of the temptations, how Jesus fought that particular test? Verse 4, it is written. Verse 7, it is written. Verse 10, it is written. God's word has divine power to destroy strongholds and every biblical distortion that Satan throws at us. So when he quotes Romans 7, 24 to you, wretched man that you are, who will deliver you from this body of death? 
remind him of Romans 7.25. It is written, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When he only brings up Psalm 22, verse 2, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Don't let him forget about Psalm 22, verse 3. It is written, Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praise of Israel. When the, Satan, when the devil tempts you with Romans 6, verse 1, Why not sin that grace may abound? Rebuke him with Romans 6, verse 2. It is written, by no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Fighting temptation is just a verse away. And it is sweet, is it not, to trust in Jesus, just to know, thus saith the Lord. But memorizing scripture is also tough sledding, is it not? It is for me anyways. And it's hard. So let me encourage you. Some of you will want to come out of this sermon and want to memorize every verse in the Bible. You're going to go home and try to memorize Leviticus and Hebrew. Don't do that. Don't do that. Start slow. Pick one verse this week. We want to help you too. So um, actually this next Thursday in the DSC Weekly, we're going to put some resources in there. uh, Resources to help us all grow in memorizing scripture. Let's do that together. Finally, the Spirit empowers us to worship. And when we worship God, we can turn away from worshiping ourselves and building our own kingdoms. We can live for and serve a king who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let me read one more passage and we will be done. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see the connections with chapter 4? On a mountain, the disciples worship Jesus. And instead of serving their own little kingdoms, they devote their whole lives to serving God and his kingdom, making disciples of all nations. Let's join them, Desert Springs. Let's join them. Like Chase mentioned the leadership at Desert Springs, we're asking and we're praying that each of you would share the gospel with two non-Christians this year. Two non-Christians. The harvest is so plentiful. So many, but we're asking for two. And even though it's just two, we need prayer. I don't know, even as Chase was sharing and I was watching the video of Janice, as encouraging and as even motivational as that was, I felt 
fear. I felt my weakness in evangelism. So I want us to take a moment, um, just quietly, where you are, uh, 20, 30 seconds, and I want us to pray, each of us individually, quietly, for two unbelievers that you know in this city. Let's do that now. Father, if Jesus really did finish the test, if he really is righteous, if he really can take the test for us, if that really is true, and it is, would you send us out, worshiping you, turning away from serving our own little kingdoms, Would we devote this year sharing this good news that in Christ alone our hope is found. In your son's name, amen.